Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. If you've lost your place in the book of Psalms, the 73rd, which we read to begin our time of worship today, I invite you to locate that again because we'll be looking at it in some detail today. It'll be the basis for the morning message. I heard about a couple who were traveling east on Interstate 10. Their journey began in Houston. Their destination was Jacksonville, Florida and they wanted to be there before dark. That was a long trip for them. They started very early before dawn and the wife was the one who really wanted to control the steering wheel simply because her husband was notorious for getting lost. As they approached New Orleans and you know the bypass around New Orleans if you travel that road, she began to get weary and she said to her husband, do you think if I give you the steering wheel, I need some rest, that you will be able to keep us on Interstate 10? It's simple. We got on Interstate 10 in Houston. We stay on it all the way to Jacksonville. He said, of course, honey, I can do that. So they stopped at a rest stop at the junction of the bypass in Interstate 10 east of New Orleans and he got under the, the wheel and she quickly fell asleep. A couple of hours passed. She awoke. She kind of rubbed her eyes and she was looking for a sign on the freeway that said I-10. But to her horror and dismay, she saw I-55, Jackson, Mississippi, 40 miles. And she says, you have got us lost again. And he said, yeah, honey, but we sure are making good time, aren't we? <laughs> it would be safe to say that this couple's perspective regarding their trip was quite different, wasn't it? Perspective matters to all of us. It mattered to the human author of this psalm. His name is Asaph. If you ever pay attention to the introduction to the psalms, if there is a known author of that particular psalm, that name will be placed above it. And there are 12 psalms which are credited to Asaph. And perspective mattered to him. We're going to see, probably you picked up on it as we read through 73 of psalms earlier. And perspective matters to all of us, really. doesn't matter what you do in life, it matters because you want to have the right focus in life. Well, Asaph, in his life, and really it's true for all of us who know the Lord, we really only have basically two different perspectives. One is the perspective of a pure heart. We see this in this particular Psalm. And the alternative to that is bitterness of heart. Pure heart, bitterness of heart. Asaph's testimony really is given to us in this passage of Scripture. And he knew both kinds of hearts. He preferred the pure heart in the end and in the beginning, I'm sure he did. We don't have any account of how he became pure in heart to begin with, but it would be the same way every one of us becomes pure in heart. I'm going to go to something that Jesus taught in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. You're familiar with the fact that he gave some beatitudes which are characteristic of people who are members of the kingdom of heaven. The first of which is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Simply put, to be poor in spirit is to recognize how spiritually bankrupt one is. It's the beginning point on the way to purity of heart. 
Each one of these Beatitudes builds on the previous Beatitude or Beatitudes. The second Beatitude is blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What happens when you are brokenhearted over your sin, you're distraught, you know that you need help, you're a broken person, the result is there accompanies sorrow. Sometimes tears, not always, but a sadness, a heaviness of heart when you realize how estranged your spiritual bankruptcy makes you from God. The third beatitude is blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. The word translated gentle is a word which was used outside the New Testament to describe a wild stallion which had been broken by its trainer and had become submissive to the one who rode that stallion. Same power, same strength, but there was a radical difference. The person has submitted himself in the case of the Beatitudes to the Lord, having first of all recognized spiritual bankruptcy, and then having recognized that mourning over his or her sin, and then submitting himself or herself to the Lord. The fourth of the Beatitudes is blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. All these other Beatitudes lead to the desire for righteousness. And the result of this is satisfaction. No satisfaction apart from our having that kind of submitted heart to God. But those who hunger and thirst after God and righteousness, they are people who have that kind of satisfaction. The fifth is blessed to the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. One thing that can be said for sure about people who are broken over their own sin and are submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, people who consequently hunger and thirst after righteousness, is their attitude toward other people changes. They go from being pharisaical and judgmental to becoming people who, knowing their own shortcomings and knowing the grace of God, they don't wink at sin, but what they do when they encounter sin in others, their heart goes out to them and they reach out to them and they seek to have mercy on him and be agents of the mercy of God. And it begins by helping other people to see the thing that really is bothering them is their sin. And then we come finally to the beatitude regarding purity of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Can you think of anything more important than seeing God? We know that no man has seen God face to face. There are a few exceptions of that. But we are to seek His face, is what the Bible says. We're to seek His fellowship. We're to seek a relationship with Him. Our whole life could be boiled down to what David writes when he says, seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continually. Seek His presence continually. Purity of heart. Asaph began his journey with God with a pure heart. And then something happened in his life. We don't know the exact details of it. We're going to see the general information that he shares with us as we work through this passage of Scripture. This may raise a question in your mind. What does it mean to have a pure heart? What is the essence of a pure heart? Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher and theologian, a Christian, and he wrote a book entitled Purity of Heart is Desiring One Thing. And do you know what his description of that one thing was? It was to do good. And when you read more carefully, it was not just being a do-gooder. It was doing the will of God, being in that place 
where your submission exhibits itself in your obedience to God. There's a great place of peace there, isn't it? Isaiah tells us that if only we pay attention to his commands, our peace will be like a river. So this man, Asaph, was a man who begins this psalm. Notice the way he begins it. He begins it where we all should begin our relationship in thinking about God and purity of heart. He says, surely God is good to Israel. He wants to make it clear to his readers, to his singers, that they understand that God is good. Even though he wrestled with the goodness of God, as we're going to see. Just like we have a tendency, even though we have become pure in heart in our relationship to Christ, we have to yield ourselves to Christ, submit ourselves to Christ, or else we will never be saved. But along the way, we run into detours, don't we? We get bumps in the road. I'm going to go ahead and mention this before I forget it. I hope you won't mind. What happened that led to the descent of this man, Asaph, into bitterness is a cautionary tale. Two things occurred in his life. The first thing is that he began to compare himself to other people. We're going to look at that in some detail. It's always a mistake for you to compare yourself with someone else. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say in the book of 2 Corinthians 10, 12, that we are fools if we compare ourselves with one another. We have no idea what's underneath the surface of most people. People whom we look at and we have a tendency to envy those people for various reasons, because of their position in life or because the apparent prosperity they have materially. But what we fail to realize is they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like you and I do. They're human. And even those who know Jesus, who seem to be more prosperous than others, they have their challenges too. We don't compare if we're wise. Now this is what happens. We see it here in Asaph's life. What happened as he began to compare himself with the rich and famous the result was he developed an accusatory heart toward God. Accusing God of really not caring for him. This is a dangerous ditch that we can fall into if we're not very, very careful. Asaph begins by affirming God's goodness as we have seen. He continues admitting his struggle in believing God to be good all the time. We have that saying, God is good, and it re responds, all the time God is good. He was struggling with that. And he ends up by reconfirming his, the unparalleled goodness of God. This is a beautiful story of transparency, dealing with his misunderstanding of who God is and his understanding of God grew through his trouble. And that is why God allows us to have trouble, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's what James writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be mature, perfect, some of the translations say, and the word perfect means not perfect in totality, but perfect in your usefulness to God. We cannot mature, we cannot become like God and Christ without developing a certain amount of di discipline in our lives as it relates to counting it all joy when we encounter various things. Asaph, as I mentioned, begins by describing his descent into bitterness. And let's take a look at it. Let's look at verse 2 of Psalm 73. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. 
He was on the precipice going over the edge spiritually. And here he gives the reason why. I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. Being overweight was very much in vogue in this period of history because it was an indication that you had enough money to buy enough food and not just any old food, rich foods, and you ate them and you wanted to gain weight. Quite a difference than our day to day, isn't it? They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Here's a point that we need to take into consideration. When I start looking inward, I cannot find anything but dissatisfaction. Then when I start looking outward, when I look at other people who are doing better than I am, whatever that may mean to me or to you, then that dissatisfaction grows exponentially. So it's a problem, isn't it? Asaph was looking outward because he turned his eyes off of the Lord and he was looking inwardly again, as we see. He goes on to say in verse five, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Let me stop here just a moment. In Acts chapter 12, there is the report of one Herod Agrippa I. He began to wreak havoc on the newborn church in Jerusalem. His first attempt had to do with having James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John the Apostle, James the Apostle, one of the inner circle of Jesus, arrested and beheaded. And the response of the general populace was so positive, he thought, I'm going to get one other of these apostles, so-called, and whom did he pick? He picked Peter, the leader of the band, as it were, put him in jail. He was released miraculously, so forth and so on. This man was highly temperamental, Herod Agrippa I. He was mean, mean. He loved to lord it over people. He was like the Gentiles in that regard. And his lording it over people extended beyond the province of Palestine, and it made its way all the way to the coastline of the Mediterranean in the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Evidently, there was something of a famine going on there, and he was supplying the food. And for some reason, undescribed by Luke in Acts chapter 12, he became agitated with the Tyrians and the Sidonians. And they caught wind of it, and they were fearful of him, so they sent a large delegation to visit him. And upon their arrival, he decided to give a speech to them. He put on his royal robe. He goes out. I can see it in my mind's eye. He speaks to these people. He was quite an orator, evidently. And as he spoke, the people began to cry out, the voice of a God and not a man. Now, whether they really meant that remains to be seen. Maybe they were just currying favor with him to try to get him on their, on their side and not on bad terms with them. But the Bible says Herod did not dispute that. And what happened to him? He became eaten up with the worms right there on the spot. He died. He was a man who was full of arrogance, a man of great position, a man who had more than he would ever need in terms of material things and his life. And because of that, God did him in. So Asaph was wrong, wasn't he, when he was drawing these conclusions about all the people who were prosperous. It was not always true. They had problems too, didn't they? He says in verse 6, Therefore pride is their necklace. If we were to go to Proverbs chapter 3, I'm just going to read this, this verse. I love this verse. 
Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And the proud wear their pride like a necklace, but we who know Jesus Christ, the pure in heart, what are we to do? What kind of garnishment will we place on our necklaces? Kindness and truth. Sounds like Jesus to me. In John 1, where the Bible says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as, as the only begotten of God, full of what? Grace, i.e. kindness and truth. And so we need to understand that should be the kind of jewelry we wear, not diamond-studded things, not that they're bad, but the thing we want is a character that is shaped by kindness, and that kindness is the outgrowth of the truth, the truth of God in Christ, the truth of God in God's Word. So let's continue our consideration of this description of Asaph that he gives as he was in the descent toward bitterness. Verse 7, their eye bulges from fatness, the imaginations of their heart, there's the heart again, run riot, they mock and wickedly speak of oppression, they speak from on high, they're high and lifted up, basically haughty, they have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongues parade through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place. This would be the arrogant one. And, wa and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? These people who are arrogant, they have no need of God. They separate themselves from God. They've got it all together. Behold, verse 12 says, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. And look at the response. After he said this, look at the response. It's really the thing that helps us to understand what's going on in this dear man Asaph's mind. He's on the brink of stepping over the edge. His feet are about to stumble and he is to slip off into an abyss spiritually probably. Look at what he says in 13 and 14. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Have you ever felt like that? Have you sought the Lord? You have been a man or a woman who has trusted in the Lord. All of a sudden things don't go well for you. You have some problems entering into your life. Well, don't be surprised if that happens to you. We, after all, are following Jesus Christ. And Jesus, in his ministry, everything didn't go so well for him, if I'm not mistaken. He had a lot of rejection to deal with. Perhaps the most difficult rejection is described in the book of John in the beginning of it. And he says, the writer of John, John the Apostle says that there was the true light, speaking of Jesus, which comes into the world. And the world was made through him. And look at what he says. And the world did not know him. Imagine that. The creator of all the universe and the creator of all mankind. He comes to them and they don't want to have anything to do with him. And then here is the bitter part. And it goes on to say, could have been bitter. Jesus was not bitter because of it. Not only did the world not receive him, but even his own rejected him. Amazing, isn't it? Jesus dealt with rejection all around. His family looked down on him, many of them did, and certainly the nation of Israel, which was his broader family. Many of those people looked down upon him as well. So surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. His bitterness 
Asaph's did cause him great pain. And the bitterness, you could say, was precipitated by the pain itself. But really, it was precipitated, bottom line, due to a misunderstanding of what it means to know and serve the true God. It's not a free pass from having trouble in your life. On the contrary, it's an opportunity to walk with Christ in identification with Him. And whatever happened to Jesus, you can expect it to happen to a lesser degree to you in terms of reaction against you. And understand that this is not something that caught God by surprise in your life. The Bible talks about how affliction is used by the Lord in our lives and that God actually is the one who signals for this, this affliction to occur in your life. That's a hard pill to swallow, but any careful reading of the Bible either of the testaments will issue in that truth. But what we want to consider here is that this trouble that comes is purposeful. I'm going to give you one example of this from the Apostle Paul's life. These are his words to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, we do not want you to be an informed brothers about the hardship we faced in the province of Asia. He says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Now catch this next statement. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? Coming from the apostle. And then he says, but this happened. Now listen to this. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. We've just exited the time of the year where we celebrate the resurrection. And then here, Paul is never very far from his trust in the risen Christ. He's reminded that all this trouble, this pressure that has caused him great anxiety and trouble, great loneliness, depression, he even says, Later in the book of 2 Timothy, I, was, I mean, 2 Corinthians, I'm depressed. Okay, so this, this is what we need to understand. The greatest expression of the power of God was in a graveyard. And when you and I think everything has gone haywire, we need to understand we like Paul need to keep our eyes on the Lord. And like Asaph almost did, he almost fell off the cliff, but he didn't. He came back and got right. Now look at Hebrews for just a moment before we go into the recovery that he made and how he did it. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now, what does it mean to be sanctified? What does it mean to be sanctified? It means to be set apart for God's use is what it means. Holy is the word. Set apart for God's use. How are we sanctified? Who does the sanctifying work in our lives? Who sets us apart? The Holy Spirit does. 1 Peter 1, 2 talks about the sanctifying work of the Spirit in the lives of believers. And then Jesus talks about in John 17 that the Holy Spirit, He doesn't say that, but that's what I'm sure He would have said. He says that sanctify them with your truth, Father. The Word, your Word is truth. Psalm 119, 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In that same chapter of Psalms, Psalm 119.105 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The word of God is used by the spirit of God 
to sanctify us, to make us useful to the Lord, and without which no one will see the Lord. It's that idea of bless the poor in spirit again. Then look at verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. What is the grace of God? We know the grace of God is His stooping to love us. It's His riches at Christ's expense for us. It's the undeserved merit that comes to us, not based on anything we do or are, but comes to us simply and solely by the goodness of our God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. There was a root of bitterness that was taking place in Asaph, or at least he was on the edge. He basically says, let's look again at Psalm 73. Go to verse 22. 21 and 22. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. We become inhuman. From God's perspective, what is humanity? Being a real human is being like the prototype of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And we just get off the rails and we behave in a way that's uncharacteristic of what God would have us to be and to do. And that was what was going on in his life. And he got bitter. Now, bitterness is a choice. I can be bitter at you if I want to or bitter towards someone else. In the final analysis, my bitterness toward another person is really bitterness toward God. The perfect example of this is Joseph in the Old Testament. And when his father had died, his brothers were there. They had been the perpetrators of his being sold into slavery. He suffered incredibly difficult things for 20-something years before he got relief before the word of the Lord came to pass in his life. And he said, as they were begging him for mercy, and he said through tears, he said, you don't get it. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. What good came out of his exile, his imprisonment, his being falsely accused of trying to molest his owner's wife, his staying in a, a dank dungeon, and then also being forgotten by people whom he asked, would you just give a word of affirmation to the Pharaoh for me so that I could be set free? He felt lost in the mind of God. He didn't think God was with him, was listening. He was burdened by it. But then, the long and short of it, if he had not been imprisoned, then Israel would have died. They would have died of a famine because Israel was over in the promised land. Their daddy was with them. Israel was his new name, Jacob. We know him. And that band of 70 or so were brought down and they were saved because of Joseph. Amazing, isn't it? Bitterness. I remember I tried to calculate the time. It's been over 30 years ago now. I was a pastor in a church and my mentor came at my request to preach in our church. And he'd been there a couple of days. And he'd been observing things in the church and observing me. And he made this statement to me as we were driving together. He said, Mike, I perceive that you've become bitter. Well, thanks a lot for the word of encouragement. <laughs> you know, he was right. I knew immediately he was right. I'd become bitter toward people in the church of all things. And so I said, I don't know if I thanked him. I don't remember that. I should have. But I let the Lord deal with me through that word and I realized what happens when you become bitter. It's something that 
poisons other people, not just you. It poisons your family. It poisons your church. It poisons your environment, wherever you are. And we need to be done with it because it's counterproductive. We're shooting ourselves in the proverbial foot if we don't get rid of our bitterness. Give it to the Lord. Ask Him to help you. He will help you with this. And that was a turning point in my life. I've had many, and I'm not saying I never entertain bitterness again. It's been a long time. 30 years gives you a lot of opportunity, doesn't it? It really does. But the good news is Asaph overcame. He regained his proper perspective, and this is going to be briefer than the rest of the message, but it's very important by drawing near to God. Let's look at verse 15 of Psalm 73. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of your children. He was tempted to just to go off on God in front of people who looked to him evidently for guidance. He was this great poet. He didn't have any idea that he was writing, writing what would eventually become the Word of God and was the Word of God at the time. In verse 16, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until, have you ever thought about the word until? How, look at it, start looking at it differently when you read your Bible. Until, thank God for that word, I came into the sanctuary of God. What happened? He drew near to God. What happens when we who hold bitterness hold on to it? We seethe sometimes when we think of people. We can't even look at them. We can't even speak about them without it just raising our blood pressure. And until I came into the presence of God in the sanctuary of God, amazing. That is the key. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy, the Bible says. In His right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And we want to use the grace of God to help us recall how indebted we are to the Lord. But also, we miss the grace of God and we, we tend to be about ourselves even in our better moments. But this is what we need to understand. The people that we hold something against need the grace of God. And by the way, it's just like the Lord to want to use the person who's offended to be the agent of grace. How do I know? Jesus says this. You could quote it. Love your enemies. Remember that? And what follows? Pray for those who persecute you. If I'm not mistaken, when I pray for somebody else, I bring them into the presence of God who is grace through and through. So I can come to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to pray. I, I don't feel like it, Lord. But I, I want to obey you, Lord. And I bring those people before the Lord. What an amazing thing happens in my heart when I'm coming into the presence of a holy God and a gracious God whose mercies are new every morning. And a miracle occurs. Let's read a little further here. Verse 17 goes on to say, Then I perceived therein, he's talking about those he had been envious of. Surely you do set them in slippery places. His perspective is changing now, isn't it? You do cast them down to destruction. It's not my business to cast someone down who's wrong. Who's responsible for that? God is, and he will see to it. I think about one of the most dastardly villains of all time, Stalin, Joseph Stalin. He was responsible, as suggested, for the deaths of 20 million people. His, and that's probably a conservative estimate. His regime killed more Jews than Hitler's regime, if you can imagine. More. 
He came to die, just like every man comes to die, every woman comes to die. When the time came for him to meet his maker, his daughter, his only child, his only child, her name was Svetlana, and Lana for short, and she described his death. She said, my father died the most horrible death imaginable. She watched him in anguish as he was leaving this world to go to his judgment before God and then on to hell for eternity. And he saw the agony there. Be sure, the Bible says, your sins will find you out. In the book of Numbers, 32, 23, your sin will find, it found Stalin out, it'll find me out, it'll find you out. How, he goes on to say in 19, how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. God is not a sleeping giant. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. He knows what's going on in your life, what's being done to you. He knows that. But what He also is intent upon is coming alongside, molding you more fully into the image of His Son Christ and then using you and using you to help others. Let's go ahead. Look at verse 23. We've looked at 21 and 22 already. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. This is cool. You have taken hold of my right hand. Don't you love that? And your counsel, with your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Walking hand in hand is a metaphor that's often used in music we sing with Christ walking. And what's he going to do? He's going to guide us in this life and when this life is over, we go to be with Him. He will greet us and Jesus will and usher us into heaven. And then look, this great passage. I have learned by memory a couple of these verses and I quote it way too often, probably. But I love it. I'm appalled by it when I look at my own life many times. Verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? Yeah, praise the Lord, right? The second part's what gives me fits. And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Now remember, who has he been comparing himself to? The rich and the proud, right? But what he knows is that if he keeps his eyes on the Lord, then God is going to guide him. God is going to counsel him. For behold, he goes on to say, my, in 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. The heart is prominent in this psalm, isn't it? And my portion forever. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart is what the Bible says. And when that happens, the outcome is the outcome we see in the life of Asaph. Verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. James writes these words, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil... I haven't spoken much about him, but believe me, he's the one who stirs the pot in your life. He's the one who intimidates you. He's the one who talks to you about other people to get you estranged from people, to tempt you. He can't make us do anything if we know Christ, but he sure works overtime to make life miserable for us, doesn't he? What does the Word of God say in James 4? It says this. It says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you and then draw near to God. These beautiful words. And he will draw near to you. What a blessing we have as being followers of Christ. We should not be discontent 
with our lives if we are we have the wrong focus the wrong perspective the perspective is to have the Lord at the center of our vision to understand that we're to do what the Bible says fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame as for me the nearness of God is my good isn't it awesome it is and then he goes on to say here I have made the Lord God my refuge this is for us when you sense a an uneasiness and maybe a, a disenchantment with the Lord draw near to him and he will draw near to you come to the Lord what I've noticed about myself when I'm out of sorts with me myself and then I tend to let that spill all over into other people I don't want to pick my Bible up and read it because I know I'm going to get confronted when I do it and I need confronting, and you do too. We all do, and that's why Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. We're to spend time with the Lord daily in fellowship, so we'll know Him. And then He goes on to say, I have, after He says, I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. That's it. We're telling of the works. Asaph is still telling of the works of the Lord, isn't he? Over three, probably about 3,000 years later, at least 2,500 years, he's still telling of the works of the Lord. And this is for you and for me when it comes to this whole matter of our being people who have the right perspective, keeping our eyes on Christ and following Christ. Now I want to give you, as I finish now, some verses. Um, would you put them up there, Sylvia? Please, on the screen. All right. Psalm 51.10. Many of you could quote it. We sang it earlier today. Here's the beginning point to get in right relationship with God. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit in me. Humble yourself. That's the beginning point. Psalm 84, 11 says this, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. And then Psalm 32, 8, David wrote both of these psalms, all three of these so far. 32, 8, this is what David says. God speaks through him in his pen. And God says, I will counsel you and I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. When I cry out to God for a clean heart, and when I say, God, teach me your way that I may walk in it, and then God says, I will do exactly that. We need to claim that promise. And then I've mentioned James 4, 7, and 8, and then I've mentioned James 19, 11, and I mean, Psalm 119, 11 and 119, 105 and Proverbs 3, 3. At the end of his great ordeal, Job, you remember Job, right? Job, no one could rival the trouble Job had in a matter of probably just a few days. He lost his entire family. Ten children. They were old enough to have gatherings at their places of residence, so it would make sense probably they were married and they probably had children. And so Job lost those ten kids, but probably some in-laws and grandchildren perhaps. He lost his family. That was the biggest loss. He lost his fortune. All of his livestock were either rustled or burned up from above. He also lost his fame, his reputation. He had the best reputation going. But what happened was when he got sick, people shunned him because there's something wrong with you if you're sick, right? 
That was the way they thought. It's the hand of God against you. He lost his future because he was covered with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet and everything in between. People didn't want to be around him. He was alone. And God heard his complaint. God can handle my complaints and yours. But at the end of all that, God said, okay, big boy, be quiet. I'm going to tell you who I am. He told him. He was in a position to hear because of his condition. And then after he listened to the Lord, he makes this simple statement that defined the rest of his life. He said, until now my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself. In other words, deny myself. I die to myself. I can't trust myself. He says, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. That was the cure-all for him. Not all the things which happened, but his recognition that he had no bone to pick with God. God was in the process of accomplishing in his life what had to be accomplished for him to fulfill his purpose. And he makes one statement that's easily overlooked. I'm talking about Job now. In Job chapter 34, verse 9, I, I puzzled over that book so long and eventually it dawned on me when I read that one verse, it says, Job, Elihu, the young man, quotes Job as saying, Job says, it profits a man nothing to please God. We think that we are owed stuff from God. God owes me nothing, nor does He owe you anything. We are the recipients of His grace. And we ought to be glad beyond all imagination about our God being a God who is so gracious to us, loving, kind toward us. And He has chosen us to be His children. And He will see us through. He'll take us by the hand just like he did Asaph, just like he did Job, and every other figure in the history of his people and lead us through this life and we can declare who he is and give hope to others. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God. We pray now that you would take this feeble attempt to explain it and apply it and that we would be men and women who have your viewpoint on who you are, but also on who we are. We are loved. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring enough to see to it that we have struggles because we know that according to your word, there is no hope for development and maturing and therefore greater usefulness to you apart from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.